This morning, our lovely pirate friend has been talking with the, his mates on his ship about something that was created, something that didn't just happen by chance. And I want to continue this theme of hearing from children in, in terms of what has been made. Um, Shelley and I at home have this fun book called Kids Say the Greatest Things About God. It's a book where someone went around and asked a series of questions to children and then recorded their responses to those questions. I want to read a few of the responses from children to the question, how did God create the world? One child said, well, he started out doing some plants in water and then worked his way up to people. So evidently he started things a little bit easier, like plants in water, even though I think those would be pretty hard to make. But he started with those and then worked his way up to people. Another person said, God worked on light for about six days, and then he just started shouting the words, like trees, and there were trees. So I guess light was pretty challenging to make for a while, and then he got that down, and then he started just shouting words, and things appeared out of nowhere. Someone else said, in the beginning, about 95 years ago, God created the pilgrims and the Indians. Then he made Mary and Joseph, and the rest is history. So, a few things that I beg to differ on there, including the age of the earth and what the order was in creating things, but still knew that God had some role in them. Finally, in the beginning, everything looked yucky, like when you put cheese in a glass of water and stir it up. Then God made the world and people, but it took 62 more years for him to make cars. I like that last description. He he, it looked yucky at the beginning, like, I mean, he seems to be speaking from experience of putting cheese in water and then mixing it up, and then it took a while after he made people to make some cars. But these are stories uh, of children's ideas of how the world was created. Uh, we hear these stories and we kind of chuckle in our minds or sometimes out loud, just thinking, well, that's a funny idea, but I'm pretty sure that stuff didn't look like cheese in water. I'm pretty sure that the world is older than just 90, 95 years. I mean, we listen to this stuff and just think, okay, not quite true, but nice try. Well, the first verse in the Bible says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a clear statement that, number one, God exists. And number two, that God created everything in this entire universe besides himself. He himself has uncreated everything else was created by God. Now, when many people hear that statement that God exists and that God created the world, they approach it with a very similar attitude as we did to these stories from the children on creation and think, well, nice story. I mean, you can believe that if you want, but we just, we'll sit back here and chuckle or we're just going to say, you know what? That's not quite right. That's not quite how the origin of the universe went. Maybe there isn't even a God. We hear statements all over our culture, people saying that, you know what, it's nice for you to believe that, but sorry, God really doesn't exist. And we hear on TV, whether it's in interviews with supposed scholars or even on TV shows uh, that, that really question the existence of God, we read about it in magazines or in books or even in newspaper articles. Uh, we, we hear about it from friends, whether it's at work, from family members, from neighbors, um, we see all over the place, you even hear it in school at times, in textbooks, or from teachers, that God doesn't exist, and that everything we have got here naturally um, in some, some way that it did not include God. 
And I think that even for those who are trying to follow Christ faithfully, who do believe in God, there are definitely those times where we have those doubts in the back of our minds wondering, what if my beliefs in God aren't right? What if God really doesn't exist and I'm just believing all this in vain? I know I have those thoughts go through my mind at times. They usually don't last super long, but they're there just for a few moments or a few minutes just wondering, what if what I believe about God is not true? These are very important questions. I, I consider this question about uh, does God exist maybe the most fundamental question that we can ever ask. And as we know, looking around our culture, there are a variety of answers to that. Well, today we're going to look at that question. We're in the second week of our new sermon series called Big Butts, Examining Objections to Christianity. We're looking at these objections or butts uh, that are very common in our culture around us and even common in our own minds when we look at the difficult questions about God. Today we're asking the question, but how do we know that God exists? How do we know that God exists? Today I want to point at three different reasons that I believe point to the existence of God. Three reasons. There are a whole lot more reasons than that, but for sake of time, we're going to look at three that I consider to be three of the most helpful ones. Um, I don't consider these to be absolute airtight proofs for the existence of God uh, because I don't think that there is an airtight proof uh, for the existence of God. I also don't believe there's an airtight absolute proof for God not existing. I think really either side, you, you take it on a degree of faith because there are a lot of unknowns in there. But I believe that these three reasons I'm going to share are three very strong reasons that point to the existence of God. And I share these three partly because they've been so meaningful to me personally. Uh, they've helped me out a lot in my faith, even in those times when I wonder, well, what if my beliefs about God are not true? I think back to these three reasons I'm going to share today, and they give me a solid foundation for my faith. And I've also found these three reasons to be very helpful when talking with people who have doubts about the existence of God. And so we're going to look at three reasons why a belief in the existence of God is a very plausible, practical belief for us to embrace. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to you believing that you are real. God, I certainly don't want to be praying to someone who doesn't exist. I don't want to be living my life for someone who doesn't exist, but I believe that there is solid evidence for your existence. And God, I pray that you will be at work in our midst today, confirming to each one of us your existence, whatever viewpoint we're coming from, Lord. Uh, for those who are doubting your existence, I pray that you will be at work in their lives, showing them that there is sufficient and real evidence in our universe for uh, your existence. And for those of us who do believe that you exist, Lord, I pray that you will strengthen that belief and equip us, Lord, to be able to represent you well to the people around us. So please guide us through your word and guide us as we look at the world around us for signs of the reality that you do exist. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As I said, we're going to look today at three reasons that point to the existence of God. The first reason that I believe is that the origin of the universe points to God. The origin of the universe. I'm not talking here about creation and evolution. Uh, that takes place after the universe originally uh, came into being. Uh, where if you want to talk more about creation and evolution, I invite you to come back on October 2nd when we're going to be talking about science in the Bible. 
But today we're, we're backing up, at least in this point, we're backing up before creation and evolution. We're talking about how did the universe get here in the first place? Stuff exists now, but how did it come into existence? The Bible is very clear on where everything came from. Look back in the Genesis 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's very clear here, saying that God was the one who created everything. In John chapter 1, we see a very similar sentiment. Uh, John 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, um, Jesus who equates with God, says, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so, this is very clear again to say that there is nothing that we see around us that has not been made by God. And so the Bible is very clear that God is the originator of the universe. It all came from him. And for some people, this, they think, is probably sufficient evidence. Uh, They think, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And it's fine to believe that, but we also need to recognize that sometimes you run across people who don't believe in the Bible. Um, And that raises the question of, is there more evidence than just the Bible that God created this universe? I would say definitely yes. That's what we're going to look at right now. We're going to look at a little bit of scientific evidence for uh, God's role in the origin of the universe. First of all, we need to understand that the universe definitely had a beginning. This hasn't always been uh, a common belief. Scientists for many years who were not Christians believed that the universe existed forever, that it was eternal. But then in the early 20th century, several factors converged as scientists did research and thought through different things. Several of these factors converged to lead to the firm belief among practically all scientists that our universe definitely does have a beginning. Let me share three of those uh, factors that converged. One thing was Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, this is a very complex theory that I personally cannot even fully explain, uh, but he has a lot of explanation for us in terms of the origin of the universe. Uh, The most famous part of the theory of relativity is the equation E equals mc squared, which even if you don't know where that originated, you've probably heard of that equation. But as Einstein was developing this theory of relativity through a series of mathematical equations, he came to the realization that the universe is expanding. And if it's expanding, that means at some point in the past, the universe was much smaller. And he realized if you trace that back far enough, it points to the universe having a beginning. Now, Einstein and a lot of his fellow scientists were very uncomfortable with this realization. But they couldn't get around the fact that these equations, which they were convinced were fully true, and nothing's disproven them since then, that these equations and the theory of relativity point to the fact that the universe had a beginning. And then this, this uh, evidence from the theory of relativity was supported by um, astronomy uh, discoveries that stars were moving outward in the universe. Uh, if you want to get technical, this is called the redshift of stars, where they measure the wavelength of the light coming from stars as the um, stars are out in the universe. And they realize that stars are moving outward, which means at one point in the past, all the stars were closer together, which again points to a beginning of the universe. And then the third factor is the laws of thermodynamics. Now, you may already be thinking, okay, this is getting all sciencey over my head, boring. I see a, a fake yawn out there, maybe some real yawns. 
But the reality is this stuff is quite important to our lives. And even if you don't have a very scientific mind, I want to encourage you to even do your best to commit the laws of thermodynamics to memory. That may sound like a very daunting task, but I'm going to try to explain them as clearly as possible. Because I've found that these laws of thermodynamics are very helpful when you're talking with someone who doesn't believe that there's a God. Because they point, in my mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the universe definitely has a beginning. And from there, you can get to talk about where is God in that beginning. I want to talk about two laws of thermodynamics. The first one is called the law of the conservation of energy. It basically says that the amount of actual energy in the universe remains constant. Now, this, this energy may be uh, shifting different places at different times, but the overall amount of energy is constant. It, it doesn't change. Uh, it's a, a more common way to express this is that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It's there. It can shift around, but you're never going to have more or less energy overall in the universe. This becomes very important when you get to the second law of therm thermodynamics which says that in a closed system, which means there's no outside source pulling in energy, which the universe could be considered a closed system, the amount of usable energy is decreasing. Now let me explain this. The overall energy remains the same, but the energy becomes less useful basically as it's used up. It takes on different forms. It becomes less usable. Um, it's, this is considered the law of disorder or chaos, how over time things tend towards disorder and low energy. It's kind of like if you have a, a child's toy that has a battery in the toy. You know that that battery is not going to last forever. Over time, as the, as the toy is used, the battery is going to run down. It's going to run out of energy. The second law of thermodynamics says that the universe is kind of like that toy that is slowly running out of usable energy. Now, what that means is that the universe could not have existed forever. Because if it would have existed forever, it would have already run out of energy by now if the universe exist, existed infinity time into the past. So that means that there must have been a starting point or else it would have already been out of energy. So the universe definitely did have a beginning somewhere. And the second law of thermodynamics also has significant impl implications for what is known as the Big Bang Theory. Uh, and we're not going to talk a lot about the Big Bang this morning, but the basic idea in that is that the universe started as this super dense ball of energy and matter that somehow was there and then exploded, creating everything we have in the universe today. Do you know, even if the Big Bang is true, which I'm not saying it is or isn't this morning, but even if it is true as far as how the universe started, where did that super dense ball of energy and matter come from? It could not have been there forever. Because if it had been there forever, its, its energy would be gone by now. It would have run down out of usable energy. And so the universe, everything we have here, had a beginning. One of the aspects of science is it's the study of cause and effect. The thing that everything that happens, everything that uh, has a beginning, has some sort of cause that causes it to happen in that way. So we have the question of what was the first cause in the universe? What was the first cause? We can point to a lot of other causes along the way, but what was the first cause that caused the universe to spring into existence in the first place? This is one of those things that scientists really struggle with answering, what was that first cause? Now, a common question at this point is, well, if the universe had to have a cause, doesn't God have to have a cause as well? 
Well, technically not, because we're saying that everything that has a beginning or everything that changes has to have a cause. But God, in biblical beliefs, has existed for, from eternity past. So he's existed forever. So he didn't need a cause to come into existence. Now, it's definitely still very challenging to wrap our minds around that idea of God existing forever. But I would say it's not any more challenging than trying to figure out how something came from nothing. Really, belief in God takes faith, but atheism also takes an immense amount of faith as well. They both take faith. It's a matter of which one is more realistic. I mean, is it realistic to think that something came from nothing? I mean, it's pretty hard for nothing to create something, don't you think so? Uh, there's a blog out there uh, called The Friendly Atheist. It's kind of a humorous, interesting blog to read sometimes. But on the Friendly Atheist blog, I found this kind of tongue-in-cheek definition of atheism that I think is very helpful. I think there's a little chuckle in the back of this guy's mind as he's writing it. But I think it's very true and points to how challenging it is to think about the beginning of a universe coming with absolutely nothing causing it to come. Here's his definition of atheism. He says, Atheism is the belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing. And then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything. And then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits which turned into dinosaurs. Now, I'll leave the dinosaur part apart, or to the side for now. That's another discussion. But did you hear what he was talking about? It's the belief that there was nothing, and then nothing happened to nothing to cause something, which then became highly complex in order to create who we are today. I mean, to me, that is very challenging to understand, very challenging to believe. So we come back to this issue of what was that first cause? What caused the universe to come into existence in the first place? And I believe that that, that definitely points to the existence of a God. It's easier for me to explain the, the universe coming into, into existence from God creating it, as hard as that is to understand, than it is to say the universe popped out of nowhere. So that's the first reason I believe that um, that we have for believing that God exists. The second reason is closely related to it, and it's that the design of the universe points to God. Now, if you're like me, you think, yeah, it sure would be nice if God would have put a stamp somewhere in this world saying, made by God. Um, or if he'd fly an airplane through the skies with a banner behind it and said, just so you know, I made the world. Signed, God. But I also think that even if, even if God did put a stamp somewhere like that, or even if we saw an airplane flying through the sky like that, I think we'd still doubt, okay, did God really do that, or did some human do that? I mean, on my microphone right here, I have made in Malaysia. I mean, almost every product you'll find will tell where it was made. The reality, though, is that God has left fingerprints that point to the fact that he was the one who created this universe. And we see his fingerprints in the design of the universe that he created. Now look with me, for instance, to Psalm 19, which we read earlier. The first two verses of Psalm 19 say that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. And so we see here that the psalmist is saying, when you look at the universe around us, you see God's handiwork. You see that he has been at work, that the, that the skies are proclaiming the knowledge that God was the one 
who designed them. See a very similar sentiment in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul writes that for since the, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So Paul is saying that there is sufficient evidence just in the creation around us to hold people accountable for belief in God. That the creation points to God, and specifically, we see God's creation in the way that he has designed the world. Now, when we're talking about design, what we're talking about here is how the universe is very finely tuned to accommodate us as humans living here. Think about things that are finely tuned. Think about your car. You probably know what it's like to drive a car or to be in a car that is not finely tuned. Maybe you've owned a car like this before. Where when you have a car that's not very finely tuned, you turn the key, and it sure doesn't want to start, does it? And once it starts, you may need to keep your foot on the gas pedal, keep revving it up, just to keep it running, or else it's going to die. And then when you decide to leave a stoplight or a stop sign, the car hesitates, and maybe it backfires a little bit. Um, once you get it up to speed, it's running pretty rough, maybe not running in all its cylinders. Comes time to turn, time to turn the car off, turn off the ignition switch. Nope, the car keeps running for a couple seconds. That's a car that's not very well tuned. And if the car gets far enough out of tune, the car can't even run at all. Now compare that with a car that is well tuned. Maybe a car that's newer, a car that's just been to the mechanic. It runs nice and smoothly. There's a huge difference when you're trying to drive or ride in a car that's not well tuned versus a car that is. In that same vein of thought, our universe is a very finely tuned universe. It seems like it was created to enable us as humans to live here and enable Earth to be an accommodating place for life. Let me share a few examples of the fine-tuning of the universe around us. I'm going to share six of them specifically. First of all, we look at the Earth's atmosphere. Now, we may, think, we may not think much about the atmosphere, but the reality is that our atmosphere is crucial for our life here on earth. The atmosphere is just the perfect combination of gases to sustain us. It's 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Now this oxygen, as we know, we need that to live. If you drop that percentage of oxygen, just a few percentage points, say down to 15% oxygen, we're going to suffocate because that's not enough for us to live on long term. If you raise that percentage of oxygen up to about 25%, it's not going to be good either because fires are going to start almost spontaneously because in an oxygen-rich environment, uh, fire happens so easily. And so the atmosphere uh, has just the right combination of gases, but it's also amazing how it filters out ultraviolet light, which would be very dangerous for us if we were exposed to too much of it. But it's also amazing because the atmosphere manages to keep the heat down during the day from the sun but then during the night when it gets cooler, when, when there's no sun shining on us, it traps the heat in to keep us from getting too cold. And the atmosphere is pretty amazing when it comes to sustaining life on earth. We also see this when we look at the earth's sun. How the sun is not an ordinary star. Yeah, there certainly are other stars kind of like it. But the, the sun is one of the biggest stars out there. It's in the top 10% 10 of stars. And it's also one of the most stable stars. And it's important that the sun is pretty good size because then it gives off more heat. So we on the earth can um, orbit a little bit further from the sun, 
which protects us from solar flares. Um, solar flares are the, the bursts of gas and heat and fire that, that burst out sometimes and can be very dangerous to plants that are closer to the sun. Our sun is also a very stable star, which is very helpful for us. Look at the Earth's orbit. You may not think very much about the Earth's orbit. You may be listening to this stuff and thinking, yeah, why does this really apply to me? Um, sounds like a lot of scientific mumbo-jumbo. Reality is, even if you don't think much about it, all these factors are crucial to your ability to live. If one of these ch things changes just a little tiny bit, none of us can live on Earth. The Earth's orbit is, is very stable and very unique. Uh, there are about 400 planets known around the universe right now. The vast majority of those 400 planets have a highly elliptical orbit, which means sometimes they're really close to the star they orbit. Sometimes they're a long way from the star they orbit, which means that they have vast temperature swings. Sometimes they're really hot. Sometimes they're really, really cold. But Earth has an orbit that varies by only about 3% from its longest to its shortest distance from the sun, which really regulates temperature and enables life to exist on Earth. Our, our moon is very important to us. You may think, well, the moon's just up there to look pretty. It's, it's kind of nice up there, like taking pictures of it or gazing at it at night. It's kind of romantic. But the reality is that the moon is very important for us here on Earth because the moon is just the perfect size and just the perfect distance from Earth to have the right effect on us um, in terms of its gravitational pull to keep us rotating on the perfect axis, 23 and a half degrees um, as we circle around the sun. That's what we're spinning at, 23 and a half degrees. And the moon keeps us rotating at that perfect angle. That if there wasn't the moon there, if the moon was smaller or farther away, the, the, uh, the tilt of the earth would fluctuate too much, causing, again, radical swings in temperature. But our constant 23 and a half degree tilt keeps the temperature just right for life on Earth. Also, do you know that Earth has a bodyguard? We do. It's in, in, in the form of the planet Jupiter. Jupiter is by far the largest planet in our solar system. And Jupiter, because of its large size and its huge gravitational pull, basically serves as a cosmic vacuum cleaner, protecting us from junk that's flying through space, from asteroids, from comets, from other things that are flying through space. Now, it doesn't necessarily pull all, these, all the space junk right into itself, but it pulls, it, it pulls all the space junk towards itself and away from planet Earth because Jupiter is further out in the solar system than we are. And so even Jupiter helps sustain life on Earth. And finally, and very significantly, we have scientific constants. These are values that are essential for, for so much of life and science on Earth. These are things like uh, the pull of gravity, the speed of light, properties within an atom, uh, properties of magnetism, that these constants are essential to life here on Earth. That if any of these constants just changed one part in a million, life could not exist as we know it today. So you see that the universe is very finely tuned uh, to sustain life on Earth. It's, it's pretty amazing when you look at that. So the question, kind of going back to our question earlier, is this. Can nothing create a highly complex system or highly complex order? I mean, not just can nothing create something, but can nothing create something that is very, very complex? 
Even the scientists who question the existence of God recognize that, that our universe seems to, be create, or seems to be designed in a way that facilitates life. For instance, Stephen Hawking, who is a pretty well-known atheist, he wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. He said in that book that it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. So he's saying it sure looks like there would be a God who designed the universe for humans like us. But then he spends the rest of the book explaining why he doesn't believe that's possible. But he says, you know, you know what? It looks like this universe was designed for us. Richard Dawkins, who's one of the most outspoken atheists today, says a very similar thing. He said that biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. He says... By all appearances, it looks like they were designed for a purpose. He says they definitely weren't because they happened by random chance, but they sure look like they were designed for a purpose. But to me, if the universe looks like it was a finely tuned system designed to facilitate life here on Earth, doesn't it deserve a lot of investigation to determine if there really is a God who created all this? To me, it's awfully challenging to figure out how all this came to be without some sort of God orchestrating it all. And so this fine-tuning, this design of the universe is the second thing that points to the existence of God. And the third thing I want to point to, the third reason why I believe belief in the existence of God is reasonable, is along slightly different lines. It's along more of biblical lines. But it looks at the person of Jesus. You see, Jesus himself, through his life, claimed to be God. Let me read to you a couple passages out of John. First in John 8, where Jesus is talking with some Jewish leaders. Jesus says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So you see here that Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Abraham was someone who lived over a thousand years before. And Jesus is saying, I was around before he was. But the statement is even stronger than that when he said, I am. This looks back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God is appearing to Moses in a burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to, to the Israelites. I am has sent you. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's basically claiming that he is God. And the Jews did what, what would be appropriate in their eyes. They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And we see two chapters later in chapter 10, a very similar incident with Jewish leaders, where in chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So we see that Jesus very clearly claimed to be God. Other New Testament writers believe that as well. We see multiple instances um, in the New Testament where the writers believe that Jesus, are, Jesus is God. So we have an interesting dilemma here as we talk about Jesus being God. 
Was he God or was he not God? As I said, if he is God, it points to God's existence. I've met very, very, actually, I was going to say very few people. I've met no one in my life who say that Jesus wasn't a man who lived 2,000 years ago. The question is, who was he? C.S. Lewis, uh, the Christian author from about 60 years ago, came up with this line of reasoning called Lord Liar Lunatic to explain Jesus. It goes something like this. It says that Jesus is God, which we saw he claimed for himself. And if he claims to be God, he either is God or he isn't God. It's one or the other. You don't have any other options. If he is God, that makes him Lord. And that means that there is a God in the universe. And that means that we are called to submit to him. If he isn't God, he either knew he isn't God, but claimed to be, which would make him a liar. Or he didn't know that he wasn't God, but he claimed to be, which would make him essentially lunatic, make him kind of insane, not quite mentally with it, a little self-deceived. And this is the dilemma we face. We can't simply say that Jesus was a good moral teacher when we look at the teachings that he gave about himself being God. So if Jesus is God, it shows that there is a God in the universe. Now, after hearing these three things about the origin of the universe, the design of the universe, uh, Jesus pointing to God, you may still have some questions. You may say, you know what? I'm not so sure about this. I want to study it more. I want to point out a couple of resources for you that may be helpful. Uh, two books that are here in the Freedom's Library. One is a book called The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. In this book, Lee Strobel interviews a significant handful of scientists who are all pointing to evidence, just like we've talked about today, for the existence of God. The other book is called The Reason for God by Tim Keller, which I find to be a very helpful book. It's a newer book, um, very helpful, again, on pointing to reasons for belief in God. And one other resource I'd like to make uh, available to you is that a few years ago I had a friend uh, write to me and say, you know, I have a friend who questions whether God exists. What do you suggest to help me out here? And I just wrote a few pages, very similar stuff to what I talked about this morning, um, about the existence of God. And I would like to make that document available to you if you'd like it. Um, just invite you on the back of your connection card just to write something about um, article on God's existence or something like that. And if you put your email address on the card, I'll send it to you this week as a resource. Now, in closing today, I want to point out that there are definitely some appeals to atheism in our world today. One of the things that draws people towards atheism is peer pressure. Whether it's from other people around you at work or in school, uh, pressure, scientists face this all the time, that even if they want to believe in God, they face pressure from other scientists, from publications they want to publish in, to let go of that belief in God. We even see pressure from teachers or from textbooks to believe in God, or to, to deny God's existence. And so peer pressure is one of the significant appeals to atheism in our culture. Another thing is pride. That pride can go many different directions in this discussion. But one of the things is that you have someone, say, even some of these outspoken atheist authors who, who believe strongly that there is no God. They write about the fact or their belief that there is no God. Think about how hard it would be, how humbling it would be for them to turn around and say, you know what, I've decided there is a God. Evidence points in that direction. I think pride is one of those things that when people first profess to be atheists, they don't want to turn away from that belief because for all of us, it's awfully hard to go away from something we previously supported. And thirdly, it's just that desire for personal sovereignty. 
It's this idea that, you know what, we like to be in control of our own lives. One of the implications, if there is a God, is that we are called to submit to him. Uh, uh, Thomas Nagel, a professor at New York, New York University, is an atheist. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. But here's an atheist saying he does not want there to be a God primarily because he does not want to give up his personal sovereignty. He wants to be in control of his own life. He wants to call the shots. He doesn't want to submit to God. That's one of the, one of the realities when we acknowledge that there is a God that he makes a difference in our life. Right now I want to invite Jamie Wiederite uh, up here. She's going to share just a little bit about how God doesn't just exist, but God is at work right now in our lives, transforming our lives. Jamie is a, a senior at Port High. She's involved in the Blaze Youth Group here. She was baptized just a few weeks ago at our baptism picnic. And I'd like, to, I'd like her to share a little bit with us about what God has done in her life to show that, you know what, God's not just alive, he is active. Okay, so growing up, I was surrounded by religion. I went to a private school and I, w- I went to a private school and went to church every week during the school year. I believed in God, I just didn't know who he really is. I formed an idea of him that suited my life at the time, like I was telling myself lies to believe that I was okay, and I wasn't willing to learn the truth. The Bible stories I heard at school were just that, stories. I ended up switching to a public school, but whenever I would see Christians worshiping or reading the Bible or heard them talking about their faith, I just thought they were crazy and weird. I even remember saying to a friend, I could never live that life, and I will never be a Christian. I didn't think I was capable of giving my life to someone whom I've never seen before. After entering high school, the thought of God stayed with me. I was scared of a lot of things, and I thought praying to him would help, but my fears never subsided. I was going through some hard times, reaching the end of my freshman year. My stepsister had passed away, and the month following, my grandfather passed away also. My dad at this point was becoming really sick, and I went into a deep depression. I started training jujitsu, and I spent most of my days at the gym avoiding my family. After a few months of this, I met someone who was training in the area. I noticed something different about him and the way he lived his life. He made it very obvious that he devoted his life to Christ, and for some reason, it intrigued me. I didn't know at the time, but it was the reason I had respected him so much. Then towards the end of my sophomore year, I saw a girl in class reading a Bible. This girl had been there all year, and I just noticed her then. I thought it was a little strange of her to be reading a Bible, especially because it was a public school. I went up to her, and we started talking. She let me borrow her Bible during our classes together, and I would just read random pages. We soon became friends, and it wasn't long before she invited me to her church's youth group. When I went to her house, she had surprised me by giving me a Bible of my own. Inside was a note of all the things she was praying for me. To me, it was just the coolest thing ever. After that, we went to the youth group, but it was such a new experience for me that it was overwhelming. I had fun chatting with the other kids, but when it came to worship, it threw me off a bit. I had never seen anything like that before, and I thought it was just weird. After that day, I continued to read my Bible, but I wasn't able to make it to any more youth groups. Then summer came, and I put all that had happened to the back of my mind completely. 
I was training hard and competing a lot, so in my eyes, there just wasn't enough time for any God. But summer vacation came to a crashing halt. My dad was admitted into the hospital because his liver was failing, and a week later, on August 26, he passed away. I didn't really register everything at first. I was starting at a new school the next week, so I had to stay strong. I kept my life going as best as I could, but I wasn't doing so well in school. I was getting good grades, but it was hard to make new friends. Junior year, everyone already had their friends. But then I met Haley Trier, my first friend at my new school, and she became one of my best friends. Anyways, so Haley was talking to um, Travis Sternhagen in one of our classes, and um, they were talking about the youth group that was being held at our church, and I asked her about it, and I told her I was interested in getting involved in the church. She told me all about Freedoms, and she invited me to check it out. It was a while before I actually came to find out for myself, but I did, and I slowly started coming more and more. I started to get a clearer idea of who God is and the relationship he wanted to have with me. I began, I began to desire that relationship so bad, but it seemed out of reach to me. I was jealous of the faith in Christ that people were displaying because it seemed like something that I wasn't allowed to have, or if I was, I was scared it wouldn't be real. But after looking for myself what the word had to say and the truth it had to offer, I realized that I could have faith, have faith like that too. At Districts 2011, I declared Jesus Christ as my Savior. There's a lot of comfort in a relationship with God, and I think that it is the biggest thing that I needed. What I needed was a reason for living, because honestly I wasn't, feeling, I wasn't really feeling life before that, especially after my dad died. It's really cool for me to know that I have a Heavenly Father that is there for me no matter what. I'm not saying that becoming a believer has made my life all suns sunshine and rainbows, because it hasn't. But what the truth has done for me is it has given me a sense of comfort and given, me, given my life a perf purpose. I'm seeing all the cool things God is doing in my life, and it amazes me. He has opened my eyes to so many opportunities that I would have never otherwise had. And since becoming a believer, I have decided that I want to hand my life over to God completely to become a missionary. And just thinking about it freaks me out because all this is coming from the kid who said she would never live this life and would never be a Christian. It just proves how amazing God is and all the crazy amazing things that he can do and that he will do even in the most unexpected ways.